Amen. Turn with me in your Bibles to John chapter 4. There at the end of the chapter, our sermon text lay beginning in verse 46. 46 to the end of the chapter. Hear this now. The word of the living God. So Jesus came again to Cana of Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And there was a certain nobleman whose son was sick at Capernaum. When he heard that Jesus had come out of Judea into Galilee, he went to him and implored him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. Then Jesus said to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. The nobleman said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go your way. Your son lives. So the man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him, and he went his way. And as he was now going down, his servants met him and told him, saying, your son lives. Then he inquired of them the hour when he got better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the father knew that it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed in his whole household. This again is the second sign that Jesus did when he had come out of Judea into Galilee. This is the word of the living God. And we say, thanks be to God. Please be seated. Let's pray together. Father, we're thankful for your word that it's living and active, sharper than a two-edged sword. And that just by reading it, you can quicken us. Just by reading it, you can save the dead. You can save those dead in their sin. We pray now that in in the preaching of your word, You will draw sinners to yourself, that your sheep will hear your voice, will be comforted, for you care for us, and I pray that we'll see the care of the Savior this evening. We pray in that Savior's name, amen. So the Jews marveled at Jesus' wisdom. Remember when they tried to trap Jesus in an argument? Asking about taxes, and Jesus tells them, well, whose inscription is on this coin? And they said, Caesar. And he said, well, render to God the things that are God's, and render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And and, and they are marveling. Elsewhere in the Gospels, the crowds marvel at Jesus when he does miracles. Pilate marvels. When Jesus does not defend himself during his trial, Jesus was silent, so much so that Pilate marvels. That's what the scripture records for us. And here's a question for you this evening as we begin. What did Jesus marvel at? The creator of the universe, the God man, what does he marvel at? Well, nothing surely Surprised him. Nothing, according to his divinity, surprised him. He knows all things. But what did he marvel at? The the scripture actually gives us 
some examples. Jesus marvels at two things I'm going to mention tonight. At great faith, and he marvels at a lack of faith. These things, in particular, grab his attention. So much so that we have a record of his reaction. There was a rich man who displays great faith, and he tells Jesus, you don't even need to come down to my house. And yet you can still heal, not even seeing my servant. And Jesus marvels because this Gentile expresses great faith. Similarly, Jesus marvels at unbelief when he is in the villages in Mark, in his own hometown. He only lays his hands on a few sick. He only heals a few and he leaves that town to go to the next town. And the scripture records that Jesus marveled at their lack of faith. Our passage tonight is concerned with belief. Before we get there, our confession, too, is concerned with faith of saving faith. Chapter 14 of the confession talks about our faith can wax and wane. Our faith can grow. It can slide backwards. I commend that chapter to you. The chapter says this in one place. Our faith, although it be in different stages, may be weak or strong. Can have different kinds of degrees. The faith and common grace of temporary believers. There are such things as temporary believers. These are people with something that looks like faith. Our faith can be assailed. It can be weakened. Yet... If you have true saving faith, the confession says, it gets the victory. It will grow up to the attainment of a full assurance through Christ, who is the author and finisher of our faith. So, yes, our confession is concerned with detailing these sorts of things that we'll see in our passage tonight. John himself is very concerned with this idea. Belief is an idea that is spoken of in John more than any other book. The word believe shows up over 80 times. In the book. That's far more than any other book. Matthew, Mark, and Luke mention the word 30 times. That's combined. So, to put it lightly, this is John's aim that by reading, you may believe Jesus is the Christ. And John, he actually says this directly at the end of the book. He's obvious in his intention. And that itself, before even getting started, I think that's a lesson for us. In our own evangelism, there is a time and a place just to plainly state our purpose. Have you ever done this? Yes, I do want you to become a believer in Jesus Christ. It's why I'm here. It's given me great joy. It is the only way to have my sins forgiven, and I want to share this joy with you. So, yes, I do want you to believe what I believe. That's the whole purpose of our conversation, sometimes being direct like that. Like the, like the Apostle John is, is, is helpful, actually takes some of the tension out of the conversation. I could even say that my purpose each time I stand back here in the pulpit is that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ. And if you already believe that, great. But my intention, whether you believe or not, is the same. I want you to believe and I want you to grow in your belief. This is our aim in preaching. It's our aim in Reading the word. 
We want to marvel, don't we? We want to marvel at Jesus, but we don't want to marvel especially at signs and miracles. We want to marvel especially that God saved sinners like us, like the Apostle Paul who said of himself, I am the chief of sinners. We want to marvel that the God-man bore the wrath that sinners deserve, that in some mysterious way, that we may not fully understand, the, the sins of, of, of all of Christ's people were placed upon him. And that the wrath of God was borne out on him, that sinners, that Christ's people, do not have to be punished by God. We want to marvel. Only the God-man could do this. And he is willing to save you. So if you're hearing this, For the first time tonight, this is my purpose for preaching that you may be saved. And if you're here and we see each other regularly, my purpose is that you may grow in your faith as our confession commends to us, as the scripture commends to us. This is a subtle passage, but as we dive into it, keep these themes in mind. There are two headings really tonight, two headings, right? Simple passage. The first is this. Jesus is displeased with a lack of faith. Jesus is displeased with a lack of faith. Beginning in verse 43, it says that this is immediately following uh, the, the, the encounter with the woman at the well. Jesus departs and he goes to Galilee. So he's leaving the Samaritan area and he's going back into an Israelite area where there are Jews present. And then you have to notice really carefully right here, verse 44 and 45 present sort of a, a, a conundrum of sorts for us. We've got to do some work here. For Jesus himself testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And then the very next verse says this, when he came to Galilee, the Galileans received him. Okay, so what's going on? It says that a prophet has no honor in his own country. And then it says the Galileans received him. So what exactly is going on? Jesus had been here before. This is where he turned the water into wine. And this, again, will be a second sign that Jesus is about to perform when he heals the nobleman's son. And this is something that John does. He lays out signs. Each miracle, in a sense, is a sign. It points to Jesus's divinity. So again, John's aim is that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah. But look there, verse 44 and 45. What exactly is going on? This proverb that Jesus says here that a prophet has no honor in his own country. This is said of his hometown, Nazareth, but he's not exactly in Nazareth. That's not what the scripture says. And when he comes to Galilee, this could be a larger region. And he, and then the scripture says he is received. And this is contrasted. If you think about it with what just came before in Samaria, Remember, after the woman at the well comes to faith, much of the town comes to faith. The Samaritans welcome Jesus. 
And then yet Jesus crosses back over into a Jewish area and the scripture says this curious statement, a prophet has no honor in his own country. Don Carson, a New Testament scholar, says that John is writing with a deep irony here. To put 44 and 45 back to back is a deep irony. So when it says that the Galileans welcomed him, the context really shows something different is going on. They welcome him in a certain sense, and we'll get into that as we move forward. Next, we'll we'll see that verse 46, Jesus comes again to Cana of Galilee, and this is where the nobleman comes. And the nobleman is at a further distance. He's in Capernaum. That's where his son lay sick. So this nobleman has to travel overnight to see Jesus. He hears that Jesus is back in Galilee. And we can presume that this nobleman can afford good health care, and he's probably had all sorts of doctors come and look at his son, but he comes, nothing is working, so he comes to see Jesus. So think about what this implies already about the nobleman. He believes that Jesus can heal his son. And he comes a great distance because he believes this. So when he comes, he implores Jesus. He he implores him. That means he begs him. So this nobleman, perhaps he perhaps he's asking over and over again. He's really humbling himself, isn't he? But again, that just highlights the belief that he has. Perhaps the nobleman doesn't want to humble himself before a mere teacher without some sort of belief. And then we have this curious thing. After he comes down and asks Jesus to heal him, we read this other statement. And again, this is subtle. We've got to do a little bit of legwork up front, and then it kind of flows once we unlock these next few verses. So verse 48. And you, you need to be asking the question, where does this come from? Where does this come from? Jesus says to him, unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. So a, a man comes and he and he begs him, sir, heal my son. And Jesus doesn't heal him right away. Jesus says something else. Jesus begins teaching. And he's not just teaching this nobleman. He's teaching the crowd at large. Unless you people see signs and wonders, you will by no means believe. And we don't know exactly what Jesus' tone here is. Is he angry? Is Jesus sad? Is he just stating this matter-of-factly? Is a reality that must be dealt with? But again, it seems like the nobleman believes in Jesus' power. Jesus elsewhere says that if we have faith, Even the size of a mustard seed, we can say to one mountain to move and it will move. So why doesn't Jesus just commend his faith? Why does he go on this little teaching point? I think Jesus is highlighting for us and for the crowd around him what is most important. And there's something going on here that John doesn't record for us. There's something that we sort of have to pick up between the lines. But there's something going on in the crowd that day. There's something going on in Israel and Judea in general that Jesus is correcting. Unbelief is a great sin. It is rejection of God's revelation. It is rejection of God's testimony. 
And for those who hear and yet still do not believe, they reject the gospel. Notice now the nobleman says to him, sir, come down before my child dies. It's like the nobleman. He doesn't have time to, to talk about these, this theological this theological correction. He doesn't want to talk about that. My son is dying, sir. Come down before he dies. This is reminiscent of the persistent widow. There was a woman who was denied justice, but she kept going to the judge day after day. She does not give up. And this is what we shall do, too. We should knock at the door and there are times and seasons and certain requests that we should just keep on requesting. You keep knocking until the door is open. And so the nobleman does. He's a good example for us in this. Before moving on, just think about that. Is there something in your life where you've been knocking at the door and it is yet to be opened? This is an encouragement. We would think that when Jesus is is teaching, we want to just sit back and listen. But this nobleman has this on his heart and he just says, sir, come down. And Jesus answers. He answers. This, This may not seem like the most important of matters to Jesus, but he answers in his mercy. He answers. He wants the man to learn this lesson. But he does answer. And Jesus says to him, go your way. Your son lives. And it may seem it may seem cruel, may seem odd to some that Jesus does not answer right away. Why didn't Jesus just right away answer? Remember that time when Jesus is inside of a house and the house is the house is crowded. The house is crowded so much so that other people can't get in. They hear that there's a miracle worker in town and they want to come see him. And there's a paralytic and the, and the house is so crowded. The door is so crowded that the paralytic can't be carried into the house. And he's on a stretcher and four people help him. And in order to get to see Jesus, they actually they actually remove part of the roof and they lower the paralytic down into the house. And everybody's looking and this is a just a, a bustling scene. There's lots of people, presumably lots of noise, and they want to be at the feet of Jesus. And Jesus sees this moment when they open the roof and they lower him down. And remember what Jesus says to them? He says to the man, son, your sins are forgiven you. The man wasn't there to have his sins forgiven. Why does Jesus say that? It's very obvious the man can't walk. He's there to be healed. And Jesus says, there's something more important here. Your sins are more important than your legs. It is much more important that we have our sins forgiven us than our legs healed. And the Pharisees, remember, they grumble. They're like, who who granted this guy authority that he may forgive sins? And they're dumbfounded. And then Jesus says, so that you may know I have the power to forgive sins, I'm going to do something. I'm going to show you that I have the power to forgive sins. And then Jesus says to the man, take up your mat and walk home. And the guy gets up and he walks. Why does Jesus heal that man? It's so that he may know 
that Jesus has power to do something even better than to heal his legs. So in a similar way, I think that's what's going on in this passage. Jesus is more concerned about the nobleman's sins. He's more concerned about the Galilean's sins. That's why it's such a such an odd turn. There's a there's a warning here, I think. One commentator named Milne makes note of this, that there really is something dangerous about seeking after signs and and seeking after miracles because it puts us first, doesn't it? He says this faith based on signs and miracles must not be mistaken for true faith. This is why Jesus does not encourage it. It fails to honor God since by it he serves us rather than the other way around. We are left with the mistaken notion that we are in a position to dictate terms to him. It's good for people to know that Jesus is Lord. So when they come to Jesus, it's good for them to know I can't just treat this man like a genie in a bottle. Jesus has something much more fundamental, much more important. So that's what's going on here. Jesus just doesn't just answer every whim from Man, our second point this evening, again, this is the last point where he briefly, secondly, in his mercy, Jesus grants sinners faith. He grants sinners faith. So the man believes Jesus and he goes down and his servants meet him and told him, saying, your son lives. Well, the man, he he probably already believed this, didn't he? Because he, he doesn't continue to beg Jesus. But upon a word, he turns and he heads for home. Again, it's an overnight journey. So again, there's some sort of faith and belief that this man has. Jesus says it, and he must have said it in such a way that he believed Jesus, and he turned and he goes. And then, again, this is another curious thing going on in this passage John seemingly going out of his way. The man asks, what hour did he get better? And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. And the father knew it was at the same hour in which Jesus said to him, your son lives. And he himself believed and his whole household. And this is new, isn't it? You can tell just by the flow of the passage that when he believes now, Something new is going on. So this is this is my aim tonight, is that I want you to see sort of the journey of this nobleman. He obviously has some sort of faith that he goes overnight to see Jesus. And then he has some sort of faith that he turns around and he starts heading back home when Jesus says he's healed. And yet the man did not believe in such a way that he knew Jesus could forgive sins. It is not until this point Verse 53, that this man comes to understand Jesus in a new way. He himself believed, not just him, but his whole household. You see the, you see the journey going on? This is what Calvin says. This is, this is from Calvin. He began to believe in a different manner. The nobleman began to believe in a different manner. That is because embracing the doctrine of Christ, he openly professed to be one of his disciples. 
Thus, not only does he now believe that his son will be cured through the kindness of Christ, but he acknowledges Christ to be the son of God. And that is Jesus's aim all along, isn't it? Yes, Jesus cares about the healing of his son. But more importantly, he wants this man to believe that Jesus is the Christ. And this is a great kindness, isn't it? This man comes and he implores Jesus and the people around him. We don't exactly know what was going on in Galilee, but they're seeking signs and wonders. Just a few chapters later in chapter six, when Jesus, when he when he makes the bread for the many people, Jesus says a very similar thing. He says, you are seeking signs. You have had your fill of the loaves. That's why you're coming after me. You're not here to learn about the law of God. You're not here to learn about the love of God. You're here to see a miracle. And Jesus rebukes them. That's what he's doing here. But God remembers. He remembers that we are dust. And Jesus, though he corrects the nobleman, he heals the nobleman's son. He remembers we are dust. Psalm 103. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. That's a wonderful word. He pities us. He knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. And there's something there. Jesus corrects them, but there's something there where Jesus says, I'm going to heal your son. I'm going to grant you faith. It's a kindness from the Lord. A few concluding Thoughts. I do think that there's something interesting here to note about the hour. It says here that the son was healed at the seventh hour. That's noteworthy because way back in the beginning of the chapter, it was the sixth hour when he sat down with the woman at the well. He sat at the sixth hour. And then in his discussion with the woman at the well, He says an hour is coming. Here's what he says. An hour is coming and is and now is when the true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and in truth. The father is seeking such to worship him. So within one chapter, you have the sixth hour. That's the beginning of the chapter. And then at the end of the chapter, you have the seventh hour. And as one theologian notes, there seems to be something going on here. It's noteworthy, too, that this man's son lives at the seventh hour. That's the hour to come. And it's noteworthy that on the seventh hour, this man's son was healed. He was, in a sense, raised back to life. And it was at the seventh hour that Jesus was crucified. So think about that. Jesus, the sixth hour, seventh hour, eighth hour, he was dying on the cross. At this hour, the boy was healed. So instead of this boy dying, Jesus dies. And this boy is raised. There seems to be something sweet there. And you look in the Gospel of John, there's all these little connections. And again, what is John's aim? For those of you who do not believe, his aim is that you may come to believe for the first time that Jesus is the Christ. 
He's not some mere man. He's not some mere teacher. He's not some mere miracle worker. If we had a miracle worker today, would he just go around acting like this? Somebody seeking miracles and Jesus says, I tell you, if you guys don't see signs and miracles, you will by no means believe. Jesus turns these situations again and again to a moment of focus that we may just fixate our eyes on what is most important. And that is the forgiveness of sins. That is seeing Jesus as the Christ. That's what Jesus wants from this man. And that, in the end, is what he grants this man. May he do the same for all of us today. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this, this short snippet at the, at the end of John chapter 4. We see a people welcome Jesus, the Samaritans, and then we see a people skeptical of Jesus. I pray for all of us this evening that we will not be skeptical, but that we will grow in our faith and in our appreciation of who Jesus is. He's patient with us. May we grow in our patience for one another. So work in us through your word this evening, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.